Welcome to the New Books Network. This is Jim Stein, your host for New Books in Math, a channel of the New Books Network. Our guest today is Jonas Peters, co-author of The Raven's Hat. Games have been of interest to mathematicians almost since mathematics became a subject. In fact, entire branches of mathematics have arisen simply to analyze certain games. The Raven's Hat does something very different and something that I think listeners will find intriguing. It uses games in order to explain mathematical concepts. Jonas, welcome to the show. Thanks a lot for inviting me, Jim. It's a pleasure to be here. Jonas, what motivated you to write this book? So I always enjoyed studying mathematics and to learn about mathematical concepts and and theories. But I think the moments that really amazed me most were the moments where there were some examples that were translated from the real world into mathematics and then suddenly became very easily solvable. So, for example, I remember very well when I first heard about this picture hanging problem, uh, a problem that we also discuss in the book, where you use a theory from algebraic topology and in particular the van Kampen theorem uh, to come up with a very beautiful solution, I think. And these moments, so where problems got translated and uh, then solved, I, I think these were the moments that uh, show how beautiful and powerful actually mathematics uh, can be. There's also something else that I realized. Um, this is whenever I saw such examples, they really helped me to understand the theory and also to remember it. So, for example, uh, I never forgot about the van Kampen theorem, even though I'm not actively working in algebraic topology anymore. So this is why over the years we collected several of such examples, um, and we also used them for teaching. So we, we used them in summer academies where we taught high school students about mathematics, but also in Christmas lectures at our university. And this connection between uh, example theory uh, and solutions, this in general always worked quite well. So this is when we thought maybe it's worthwhile to share these examples um, with interested readers. So the book, I, I should mention, is, is co-authored by Nikolai Meinshausen, who's not only a good friend and colleague of mine, but also a brilliant mathematician and, and physicist. And I felt we were a good team in the sense that uh, we have a similar view on, on these type of things. And certainly it was a lot of fun for me to write it. You know, you've chosen an interesting vehicle by using games to describe mathematical concepts. Let's start with the game 20 Boxes and Permutations. Could you start by describing the rules? Uh, yeah, sure, I'm happy to. So in this game, there are 20 players, and let's say all of them have, have different names, and they are standing in a line. So uh, let's say they're standing in an alphabetical order. Now, in front of each player, there is a box with the, the player's name written on it. And inside the boxes are the player's ID cards. But before the game, these ID cards have been shuffled around. So each box now contains exactly one ID card, but the players don't know which one it is. So in front of Lara, for example, there's a box that says Lara on it, but inside the box uh, can be any ID card, so it can be either Lara's or someone else's, so it could also be Yuna's ID card. And the goal is now for the players to find their ID cards in, in the boxes. To do so, they are allowed 
to check half of the boxes. So the first player starts, um, she can look into uh, half of the boxes, so this is 10 out of the 20 boxes, uh, and tries to find her ID card. And then after she's done, the second player um, uh, is on, on turn, and he now has to find also his ID card by checking 10 out of the 20 boxes. Now, importantly, uh, this, this game is played as a group, so uh, all the players play together, and they win if and only if all of the players find their ID card. Um, so in beforehand, this means they can agree on a strategy, what they, they could try, but during the game, there's no communication allowed. Um, so they, they cannot uh, say things to each other, and they are also not allowed to move anything. So they can just look into a box uh, and then close the box again. Um, now, clearly... Uh, no, continue. Clearly, <laughs> good, thank you. So clearly, th this, uh, this game cannot always be won. Um, but the question is, what is a good strategy that the, the group has a, a large probability of winning? Okay, well, why, instead of starting with a good idea of a, a strategy which has a probability of winning, could you tell us about a strategy which always loses? Yeah, so for example, if uh, they, the players decide that all of them look into the first 10 boxes. So what this means is that 10 of the players will find their ID cards, but uh, 10 players will also not find their ID card. So this is a strategy that is not very clever in the sense that it actually always loses. Um, well, what would happen if all players chose boxes randomly and independently? So with this strategy, there's uh, indeed a chance that the, the group might win, but this chance is very small. And so l let's see uh, whether we can find, how, uh, find out how small it is. So let us consider the, the first player. The first player looks into 10 out of the 20 boxes, so the chance that the first player finds his or her ID card is just 50% or one half. Now the second player enters the, uh, the game, and again the second player chooses randomly 10 out of the 20 boxes and again has a chance of 50% of finding his ID card. Um, this means that both players find their ID card with a chance of one half times one half, this is one over four. And then of course the third player comes into play, then it's uh, one half times one half times one half and so on. And the chance that all of them find their ID card, this is really one half times one half times one half times one half. So um, a product with uh, 20 factors of one half. And I checked before the interview, this, uh, uh, this product is, is very small. This is approximately 0.000001. So the probability of winning here is, is really tiny. And, and maybe a small comparison gives an intuition how small this probability actually is. So if both of us, you and I, uh, listen to the uh, third piano concerto from Rachmaninoff, which is a fantastic piece, I think, and we don't listen to it only once, but we listen to it 30 times in a row. So this is a long concert. This takes about 24 hours then. And if we decide that we both of us pick randomly one note that is played by the piano, then the probability that we just picked the exactly the same note is exactly this number. So this is also 0.000001. So this is really, really small. So when you hear about this, it means that this strategy of randomly picking a box uh, doesn't seem to be very successful either, but 
um, in my opinion, when you hear about this this problem for the first time, it's rather surprising that one can do something that is actually better than randomly guessing. And what would that be? So um, what we can do here is we can use the uh, theory of permutations. So they actually help us uh, to come up with a strategy that uh, wins um, in a much uh, larger number of cases. I don't want to give away too much of the solution, um, but maybe I can reveal that much. So each player finds his or her ID card with a probability of 50%. Now the theory of permutations, they allow us, and this is in some sense the key insight, uh, to make these um, successes dependent on each other. So what do I mean by this? If the first player finds, indeed finds his or her ID card, then um, the strategy makes sure that uh, at the same time the probability that many others will find their ID card increases. And similarly, if the first player fails in finding the ID card, this actually means that also many other players will fail. So this is sort of the key insight uh, in this game. And what comes out is uh, a strategy that wins in 33% of the cases, which I think is um, remarkably uh, large because you can imagine that it can never be larger than 50% because even the first person, no matter what the first person does, uh, has a chance of 50% of finding his or her ID card. I like the idea of sort of keeping it a little secret because we want to tempt listeners to buy the book and read it. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the title of your book is The Raven's Hat, and there are several chapters involving hat-wearing ravens. Just out of curiosity, why have you chosen ravens to wear the hats rather than people or some other animal? Yeah, that's a good question. It, it, in fact, it wasn't uh, uh, Nikolai um, or, or I. It was our illustrator, Martin Mainzhausen, uh, who's, by the way, also a well-known climate scientist. So he came up with these drawings of ravens, and Nikolai and I immediately liked them. Uh, so we agreed to have them on the book. Um, I can only speculate uh, why, why Malte... Uh, chose them, but maybe one reason is that ravens are are smart. So there's this German expression. I don't know whether it works in English as well. So if if you have a hard riddle, then you can say it's a hard nut to to crack. Uh, does this work in English as well? Yes, exactly. Yeah, and and ravens they are known to to be able to be very good in this. So uh, they have been shown to use cars. Um, on the street to um, help them opening nuts by just putting, <laughs> putting them in front of them. So maybe this was one of the reasons. The, the title, you mentioned the title, The Raven's Head, this in fact came, uh, came only later. Um, the idea came later. We hope that it somehow reflects that mathematics can be used for solving problems and that it is also something uh, friendly, maybe like the, the ravens in the book. Okay, you know, since we were talking about hats, let's look at a problem involving hats. And this is the problem with which you lead off the book. Could you describe it and tell a little about its history? Yeah, um, I'm happy to. So in, in this problem you're referring to, uh, it's again involving several players. And this time they sit in a circle. Uh, so each of the players is, is wearing a hat. So this hat is either blue or red. So there are only these two colors. Uh, we don't know anything about the distribution of the colors. So it could be that everyone is wearing a blue hat. It could be that everyone is wearing a red hat. But it could also be a mix of colors. Now, because these players sit in a circle, they can actually see all the other players and all the colors of the other players' heads. 
but they cannot see their own uh, color and they cannot see the the color of their own head. The goal is now um, that the players should guess the color of the hat that they are wearing. But importantly, they have three options. So they can say, I'm wearing a blue hat. They can say, I'm wearing a red hat. But they can also say, I do not know. And as before, so the, the players play as a group. Uh, so this means they can, in beforehand, they can come up with a strategy what they shall do. But they all have to answer at the same time. So again, there cannot be any communication uh, during the game. And when do they win? So they win if there's no wrong answer and at least one answer is correct. So let me give an example. So if there's a, um, let's say everyone except for two players, they say, I do not know. And there's one player who has a blue hat who's saying, I'm wearing a blue hat. And another player with a red hat also guesses correctly, then they win. But as soon as there's, there's one wrong answer, then, uh, then they lose. And again, the question becomes, what is a good strategy here uh, to maximize the chances of winning for the group? Now, it's a bit surprising, I think, that there's a good strategy at all, because um, if you think about it, if you're sitting in a circle, you just see the other people's hats and these colors do not tell you anything about the color of your own head. So I think it's an interesting, interesting uh, problem. You also ask about the, the history. Maybe you know more than I do. So to the best of our knowledge, uh, it was Todd Abbott uh, who introduced uh, this problem. He called this the hat problem in his PhD thesis uh, at uh, UC Santa Barbara, I think. Uh, this was uh, in the late uh, 1990s. And many mathematicians actually tried to solve it before uh, Elvin Berlekamp from Berkeley had the key idea to solve this problem. Um, one of the questions that I had that you investigate in this book is that you talk about deterministic and non-deterministic strategies. What's the difference between them? So we, we say that a strategy is non-deterministic if it has a random component. Um, so this could be if you throw a die, for example, and then de depending on the outcome, you decide what to do. So what, is, what could this be here? So let's, let's say you play, you participate in this game, and then you decide that all the players always say, I do not know, but only you, Jim, you throw a die. And if it's one, two, or three, then you say, I'm wearing a blue hat. And if it's four, five, or six, you are saying, I'm wearing a red hat. So this would be a randomized or a non-deterministic uh, strategy. It's, it's quite surprising. These, these strategies, uh, random strategies, they appear a lot in different areas of mathematics. Um, I think whenever, for example, you have an opponent where you don't want the opponent to sort of be able to guess what you are doing, then this can be useful. Uh, or in other situations where you're trying to explore. Uh, so when, let's say, you are learning how to play a, a game and then you're trying to just explore and try out different moves in that, uh, that game, let's say you learn how to play table tennis, then uh, this can also be helpful to, to randomize a bit. But yeah. in this game, in this problem, it's actually the optimal strategy is deterministic. Um, uh, I just wanted to mention that uh, rock paper scissors is a game in which it's best played by uh, it's best played with a non-deterministic strategy. Exactly, and yeah. people might be familiar with that. Anyway, what are Hamming codes and how do they relate to this game? <laughs> so Hamming codes, um, these are the these is a, these are the beautiful key, if you like, to solve the game. Um, so I'm trying to explain a bit what they are for. 
uh, even though they are called Hamming codes, so they are neither related to a door code or a pin code that we use um, to unlock our computer screen, let's say. Instead, uh, such codes are used in communication. Um, so let me let me see whether I can explain a bit what uh, what this means. Imagine that you want to send me a message, uh, and this message now only consists of zeros and ones. So this sound, may sound a bit weird, but in digital communication at the end of the day, it's really about zeros and ones. So let's say you want to send me the message 0110. So these are, we say these are four bits, so the, the length is, is four here. Now what could be a problem if you are now sending this message via, let's say, a cable in the Atlantic, what can happen is that some of these um, bits are flipped. So because of communication problems, maybe there's a crack in the cable. So you wanted to send me 0110, but actually I receive 1110. So there's a, an error in the communication. And this is, of course, a problem. And the question is, what can we do? And here, this is where the codes come into play. So we, we could, you and I, we could agree on using a code. And this is not for encrypting a message or something, but this is ensure just for ensuring that I receive the correct message that you sent. What could this be? So for example, we could agree on that we, you just, when you send me your message, you just repeat every um, bit, you just repeat it three times. So rather than sending 0110, you could say, you can send 000, 111, 111, 000. So this would be one way um, of ensuring that I can um, sort of find errors because now if there's an error in the in the message so instead of this front 000 I receive 001 then I can find out aha Jim and I we, we agreed on always repeating sort of these bits three times so 001 probably means that he wanted to send a zero here because there are still more zeros and and this is a very simple principle it's called a code that allows it to allows us to correct errors that were in the communication channel. This is nice, but of course, as you may have figured out, this is also problematic because this message that you now sent me, this is rather long. So rather than a short message, 0110, you just send me a long message with, uh, let's say, 12, 12 bits instead of four. Um, and now what are Hamming codes? Hamming codes are something very similar, but they are just more clever. So they are similar than this procedure of repeating bits, but they are more clever in the sense that they achieve the same. So they also allow us to correct um, errors if they are some, but they use much less <clears throat> sort of space. So rather than 12 bits, we only have to use seven bits. So this is what, what Hamming codes are for, uh, are for. And at first sight now, this, this uh, sounds a bit weird in the sense like what on earth does this have to do with uh, our problem and the hats and, and the colors? But in fact, uh, they can be used to come up uh, uh, with a solution uh, to, the, to this problem. And this is a, quite an astonishing solution. So um, in fact, the optimal strategy that is built on Hamming codes makes sure that we almost always wins, win. So in particular, if we play in large groups uh, with many people. So this is a, a fun game that is also interesting to watch if you see the people uh, on stage uh, then winning this game with a very large probability, um, all using Hemming codes. Yeah, that's very surprising. Um, another game that you have in your book is something called Animal Stickers. What are the rules of this game? So here, um, 
this is yet another game where we have a group of players uh, and again they, they play as a group so what is happening is that each of the players they can walk around uh, in a room and each of the players has an animal sticker on their back so there are three types of animals so there's a zebra there's an owl and a tiger um, and they're walking around and they can see all the other players uh, with the animal sticker on the back but uh, they cannot see their own sticker now also in the room there are three boxes um, and the task is now that uh, after the players have been wandering around a bit they should line up uh, behind the three boxes and they should try to line up in such a way and this is when they win that all animals line up behind the same box so this means that all tigers are sort of uh, lining up behind the second box uh, for example so this is the task and again the uh, players cannot communicate during the game but they can in beforehand uh, try to come up with a strategy um what are cyclic groups and how do they relate to this game <laughs> so um as listeners may guess this is again the the key solution to the um to this to this game um, I think one can also try to explain the strategy directly. So uh, let me try to do that, and then I come back to uh, these uh, uh, cyclic groups later. So what is the key insight to solve this game? So again, we have players with an animal uh, on their back. There are only three types of animals, um, and they somehow have to line up behind um, the same box. Now, the key insight is that two players with the same animal on the back they always see exactly the same set of other animals. So let me give you an example. So if you have three zebras, let's say, and one owl and one tiger, then each zebra will, of course, see two other zebras, one owl and one tiger. So all the animals, uh, like all zebras, see exactly the same set of animals. And this also holds for all owls. They see the same set of animals and uh, all tigers. So this is the is sort of the key insight. The question is now, how can we use this? And here, what the players can do, they can encode the animals as numbers. So now we are fortunate about the names of the animals because we can use a zero for the zebra. We can use a one for the owl, and we can use a two for the tiger. So. What the players then do is they um, look around, see all the other animals, and they sum all the animals um, up that they can see. So now this gets a bit tricky. I, I try to explain it. This means that each of the players comes up with a different number. But these numbers are not arbitrary. They are always three consecutive numbers. So why is this? So let us consider the total sum of all players, of all animals. This is just one number. It, it doesn't really matter. So let's say it's 27. Now, if you consider um, a zebra, for example, then this zebra, so the player with a zebra on the back, uh, he's seeing all the sort of animals, but he's missing the zebra, of course, on, on his back. So he's also uh, coming up uh, with a sum of 27. But an owl? is sort of missing an owl on the back, and owl stands for one, so uh, this person is only summing up to 26. And the tiger, who is missing a tiger or a two on his own back, is uh, summing up the numbers and uh, obtains 25. So this means that the, the numbers that the players find, they are always uh, three consecutive numbers. So in this case, it would be 25, 26, and 27. 
And then we are almost done. The only thing what we have to do now, the, the players have to do, is they just divide this number by three and look at the remaining term. Um, and then they say, okay, this must be zero, one, or two. And let's say if it's zero, you line up behind the first box. If it's one, behind the second box. And if it's two, behind the third box. Um, so this uh, sounds, I think, more complicated than it is. We try to explain this in a bit more detail in the book. But th this means that the group always actually wins. So why is this? So this is just the, the line of, to finish this line of argument. All the players with the same animal see the same other sets of animals. Therefore, they compute the same sum, and therefore they get the same remaining term if they divide by the number of three. So this is quite uh, magical, I think. Uh, and why this this uh, trick works? The at the heart of this trick is really this uh, cyclic uh, group structure modulo three. If uh, um, the listeners have heard this already, that uh, makes this strategy work. And again, the the details and some examples are in in the book. Yeah, that's very clever. Um, and it's very ingenious. Um, the next one that I want to describe is something that I think a lot of people will be familiar with because a lot of people have gone to magic shows when they've got a magician because magicians, you know, one of the staples of magic is that almost all magicians do card tricks. And lots of people will be intrigued by what you refer to as the dovetail trick involving riffle shuffles. Many people have seen versions of this trick when a magician performs it. Perhaps you could talk a little bit about it. And um, it's not, uh, I should tell the uh, listeners that it's not quite as easy to visualize exactly uh, what ascending sequences are in this instance. Um, because you really have to have a deck of cards in front of you or some uh, version of a deck of cards that Jonas puts in his book to illustrate it. But it's something that I think uh, it will appeal to a lot of listeners because there are a lot of instances in which magicians do something and people don't realize that there's really mathematics underlying what the magician does. And this is one of them. So over to you, Jonas. <laughs> yeah, I fully agree with uh, what you say. Um, maybe I can explain. So as you said, this exists in different versions, and maybe I can try to explain a very simple version of this trick. So what happens is you start with a sorted deck of cards. So what does this mean? Um, this uh, The first card is the two of diamonds, let's say, then the next one is the three of diamonds, then the four of diamonds, and so on until the ace of diamonds, and then you find the two of hearts, three of hearts, and so on, until the ace of clubs. So this is the order that you also often find when you just buy a new deck uh, somewhere. Now what happens is the mag magician takes this uh, sorted deck and gives it to a contestant. And then the ma magician turns away. So then the magician, she asks the contestants to perform three riffle shuffles to, uh, to the deck. And uh, this is what um, I should explain. Maybe what is a riffle shuffle? It's a way of shuffling a deck. Um, and so what happens is that you sort of have uh, two halves of the deck and each hand is holding um, one half of the decks. And then the thumbs are somewhat inwards. Uh, and then the cards are released uh, by the thumbs so that they fall to the table interleaved. So this is uh, this makes the sound uh, uh, that is very um, uh, very special to this way of, of shuffling. And I actually have a uh, deck of cards here, so maybe I can uh, try to do it. So maybe <laughs> this audio helps a bit. So I have now two halves of the cards in my hands, and then what I do is with the thumbs inward, 
I don't know whether this was uh, oh, it's great. Uh, whether one was <laughs> able to hear it, but this is the correct sound of the riffle shuffle. Sometimes you'll hear this referred to as a waterfall shuffle because what happens is that if you shuffle it like that and then hold the cards in sort of an arch, they'll fall together and make a sound like a waterfall. Yes, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Um, okay, so the, the magician um, has given the deck of cards, the sorted deck, to the contestants and asked um, him to perform three riffle shuffles. Then after these shuffles, the magician asks the contestant to take the top card, look at it and memorize it. And then the contestant should put this, this card somewhere in the middle of the deck. So then the magician turns uh, back and looks at the deck, studies it for a couple of seconds, and then indeed finds the, the card uh, that was the former top card that the uh, contestant memorized. And then, of course, the question is, how did she do it? And here, this is a sort of one simple version of the dovetail trick. Here, the key point um, is that the deck, even though you perform three riffle shuffles, is in fact very far from being perfectly shuffled. And I think this is a there's an interesting history um, behind this. There's this card game that uh, I guess many listeners will know that is called blackjack that you can play in a casino. So you play it's a single player um, card game that you play against the casino and of course you you lose on average you always lose if you play against the bank in the casino but if you play optimally you actually lose only a tiny bit of money and it turns out if you have a bit of knowledge about the card deck um, then you can actually turn the game into your favor and this is why the the banks the casinos they became very interested in the question, well, how often do we have to riffle shuffle a deck to make sure that it's really perfectly shuffled so that the players cannot exploit any other remaining structure in the deck? And this is a question that um, a very famous mathematician and magician, actually, Percy, uh, Percy Diaconis, uh, together with his co-workers, uh, gave an answer to. So he said that in order to get a perfectly, or a very well-shuffled deck, you have to shuffle at least seven is the magic number, so at least seven times. Uh, so we actually play lots of uh, card games in our family, and uh, I don't think we ever shuffled so often, so seven <laughs> sounds like a, a, a large number. But now back to this card trick. So, of course, this contestant only shuffles three times, and three is not seven, uh, so this means that there must be a lot of structure, but now the question is how can we... Um, sort of exploit the structure. And here I'm trying to, you already mentioned these rising sequences, I would like to try to explain what's happening. Uh, but again, of course, uh, if you have a deck of cards in front of you, as you said correctly, Jim, this is much easier. But let me try to explain what a rising sequence is and then we, we can see whether this makes sense. So if you have a deck of cards, then you can try to look for rising sequences. And this is actually something quite simple. So what do you do? We start with the first card, let's say it's a four of hearts, and then we look for the successor, so the five of hearts. So this means that we're going now through the deck, um, we are always going through the deck from the beginning to the end, and we are looking for the successor, for the five of hearts. So maybe we have found it at some point, and then we are looking for um, the next successor, the six of hearts. So we keep uh, going into the same direction, always um, uh, going through the same direction through the decks, and then we are looking for the six of hearts. So this way, um, we continue until, let's say, we are looking for the queen of hearts, but before we find it, we reach the end of the deck. And then this sequence of cards, so the four of hearts, five of hearts, until 
jack of hearts this is called a, a rising sequence and now a very important number in a deck is actually the number of rising sequences so what happens is if we have um, reached the jack of hearts and we are looking for the queen of hearts if we don't find it then we start over at the beginning of the deck and this is defining the second rising sequence and then we continue with the cards, so we're looking for the Queen of Hearts, King of Hearts, and so on. And the number of rising sequences now basically means how often do we have to go through the um, uh, deck before we can find all the all the cards. Why is this such an important number? So if um, you start with a sorted deck, as I explained at the beginning, so the one that you get from the shop, then there's only one rising sequence. Right? Because all cards are in order, so two of diamonds, three of diamonds, and so on. So there's only one rising sequence. Now, if we perform a riffle shuffle, one riffle shuffle, then we end up with exactly two rising sequences, most often at least. So why is it two? Because we have in the riffle shuffle, we have one half of the deck in our left hand and one in the right hand, and then we interleave the cards and the first rising sequence really comes from the half of the deck in our left hand and the other one from uh, the um, half of the deck from our right hand. So now, the, the listener, if you uh, happen to be interested, you can think about what happens with more riffle shuffles. And what you find is that after two riffle shuffles, you have at most four rising sequences. And after three riffle shuffles, you have at most eight uh, of these rising sequences. Um, if you think a bit about it, it's actually not so difficult to see. But what this means now is that after three riffle shuffles, we have at most eight rising sequences. And this is far from being the number of uh, riffle uh, of rising sequences, uh, excuse me, that you would find in a in a well-shuffled deck. So this is exactly the difference between a badly shuffled uh, deck and a very well-shuffled deck. So in a well-shuffled deck, we would expect many more than eight rising sequences. This is something that if you know what you should be looking for, you can actually see this. So I, I really welcome everybody to, to try it out. Why does this help in our in our card trick? Because what happens now is if the contestant takes the top card and puts it somewhere in the middle, most likely he will create another rising sequence. So a ninth rising sequence. And this is what the magician is looking for. She's looking for the card that is uh, responsible for this additional for the ninth uh, rising sequence. Of course, you can uh, formalize all of this, uh, but I try to explain it words. Uh, you can formalize this using the language of, again, permutations and a bit of uh, probability theory. So now, importantly, of course, I should mention this is a trick that, that only works with a certain probability. So this is why sometimes in these magic shows you see the magician then um, coming up with two cards uh, to just increase the, the chances uh, that one of them uh, is, co is correct. I think it's a, as you said uh, in, uh, in the question, I think it's a very nice card trick uh, that is really based only uh, on mathematics and I welcome everybody to, to try it out. Yeah, you have nice pictures in the book to illustrate it, but there are any number of magic tricks involving cards that are based on magic. I'm not sure whether or not, because you're considerably younger than I am, some of the listeners may recall a trick in which what you do is you lay out 21 cards in, uh, in, three, in three columns and seven rows, and there's a way to determine precisely 
Um, uh, the trick involves guessing the card, as indeed do most card tricks. But it's something that children learned when I was growing up. And I grew up in the 1940s, so that sort of gives you an idea. But there's a lot of, uh, there's a tremendous amount of uh, mathematics involved in card tricks. So I was glad to see that your book had some of it, because I think it, it uh, everybody loves magic tricks. Anyway, anyway, moving along in the book, you have a game involving opera singers. Could you describe the game? Uh, yeah, I, I'm happy to do so. Uh, so this game, um, in some sense, it's really about asking informative questions. Um, so I'll try to explain. There's, there's one player, so this game is really about one player only, and this player is confronted with a group of opera singers. So in some sense, this, uh, this player is the opera director, if you like. Now, the task of this player is to set up opera performances. And to do so, uh, he distributes this uh, group of opera singers into singers of the first half, the second half, and some singers that will be off stage, so that don't get a, a solo part in this opera. And here, uh, so let's say the, uh, there are really a lot of different operas, so the opera director has all the freedom uh, he wants to have, so he can choose the, even that the first half is empty um, and a lot of uh, singers appear in the second half and maybe only two singers off stage. So there are really no restrictions here. Now, among the opera singers, there are two stars. Uh, these are really the star singers, and they are friends or enemies. We don't know yet. And in addition, they are very sensitive persons. So what does this mean? This means that if both stars appear in the same half of the opera and are friends, then the opera will be a great success. But if they appear in the same half and they are enemies, then the, the uh, opera will be a disaster. And if they appear in different halves, it's the other way around. Finally, if at most one star is on stage, then the uh, opera is, is regarded as neutral. Now, all these rules, it's really not important to remember them now. Uh, what is important is that the, the player who plays the opera director, he does not know who the stars are and he does not know whether they are friends and enemies. And he's trying to find out um, uh, exactly that by setting up these opera performances. So the goal of the game is that the opera director finds exactly this out. So who are the stars among the singers and are they friends and enemies in as few performances as possible. And this is what I meant earlier when I said it's a bit like uh, asking informative questions because each opera performance can be now viewed as a question and each result, so the opera is either a success, it's a disaster, or it is sort of neutral, um, this is like an answer to that question. So here in this game, it's really about what are the most informative questions, so what are the most informative opera performances that the player can set up. Um, let's talk a little bit about information content, because that's an important area of mathematics, and I think it was first studied about in the 1940s by Claude Shannon. How does one characterize and measure information content? Yeah, that is a, a brilliant question, and as you know, uh, this was a very widely debated question um, um, in particular before uh, Shannon came up with his ideas in, in the 1940s. Um, so his idea from uh, Claude Shannon was, um, he, he said, of, uh, said, okay, if I want to define information content, then what kind of properties should this information content satisfy? And he came up with a couple of criterion. So the first criterion he came up with is to say, 
Well, if an event has probability 1, so 100%, then it is perfectly unsurprising and contains zero information content. And I think this, this somehow makes sense. So if you are throwing a die, so it shows either 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, or 6, and I'm trying to find out something about what you, what you threw, so I don't know, and then I can ask you a question. And I'm now asking you the question, well, is your result of throwing a die, is this less than 27? Then, well, this probability 1, you are saying, yes, it's always less than 27. It's 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, or 6. So this means that uh, the information content should be zero. And I think it makes sense because I really didn't learn anything about what you threw. That's a nice example. Now, the second criterion that Claude Shannon came up with is he said that the less probable an event is, the more information content it contains. And again, I, th I think this is intuitive. So if, let's say, I meet a stranger somewhere on the street uh, in Copenhagen, let's say, and uh, we start a conversation, and then I'm asking to the stranger, do you happen to know my friend Anna? Then most likely, so the, the large, with a large probability, um, the, the stranger will say, no, I have never heard about her. Um, and then I didn't gain a lot of information. But if he says, yes, so I do know your friend Anna, so this is a, a less probable event, but then I actually learned a lot about this person, I gained a lot of information, and this is uh, reflected in this uh, second criteria. So these were sort of the things that uh, Claude Shannon tried to come up with, and there's a third one that uh, maybe I, I shouldn't go into detail here, but there's a third one, and then uh, he actually found that there's only one mathematical formula um, which is now known as the information content that satisfies these three criteria. And it's, in fact, a relatively simple formula. So it says the information content of an event with probability P is just logarithm 1 over P to the base of 2. So this is, this is quite, quite simple. You know, that's now maybe a, back to the... I, I'm sorry, sorry, go ahead. I, that was really a nice... Uh, uh, you gave very nice examples to illustrate that, and I really like them. Um, what I'd like to do is I'd like to jump ahead to a couple of other games in the book and then uh, then ask you a couple of questions about what your plans are. So um, one of the games that you have describes, it uses projective geometry. And what is projective geometry? How did it arise and how does it differ from Euclidean geometry? Um, yes, so there, there are many views on uh, how to think about projective geometry. So what I like to um, I, I like to say is that it's a nice way, in my view, of thinking outside the box. So we are often used to some concepts that we're very familiar with. And in mathematics, you sometimes have the freedom of saying, OK, can we actually do things differently? So what do I mean with this? So here, the thing that we are used to is really what you mentioned, the Euclidean geometry. So this is what we study in high school um, a, a lot, even if the name is not mentioned. Uh, so this is something that, that we know well, and we know many of these, these properties. For example, what is very important in in uh, geometry that if, if you have two different points, so think about just drawing on a, a piece of paper, if you have two dif distinct points, then they can be connected exactly by, by one line. So this uh, here by line, I really mean a straight line. We are very used to, to this. Now, if you think about, for example, that we have two different lines, so two distinct lines, then they often intersect in exactly one point. Right? So think about two lines, drawing two lines on a piece of paper, and then they often intersect in one point. Often, but not always. 
So the lines, of course, could also be parallel, and then they never intersect. Now, in project, uh, projective geometry, uh, what happens, you are slightly modifying these properties. So the first one is the same. So in projective geometry, you also have that for any two distinct points, there's a unique line connecting these two points. But now, unlike in Euclidean geometry, you have that any two distinct lines meet in exactly one point. So this means that there's no such thing as two parallel lines. And this sounds, I, I think it's, uh, I would be curious whether to see whether you agree, but I think it sounds much nicer and much simpler in some, some way, even though we are very used to Euclidean geometry. Um, I know that projective geometry has been around for a while, but what are some of the uses of it? Um, yes, yeah, so what we use it for in uh, in this um, in our book, uh, this is I think a, a fun application. And uh, if that's okay, maybe I, I say a couple of words about Please it. Please do. So there is a game that maybe some of uh, the listeners know know that is called Spotted uh, or also Double. Um, depending on the country where it's released. Um, and this is a card game. So maybe I focus on that uh, that game. Um, this is a card game where you have about uh, 55 cards and each card shows uh, some objects. So this could be a snowman, there could be a snowman on it, a hammer, a violin, uh, and so on. Now there are about 57 uh, objects and each card shows exactly eight of them. So you have lots of cards and each card has exactly eight um, objects on them. Now you play this, let's say with a friend, and the game starts where there's one card in the middle, again showing eight objects. And you are holding one of your cards, also having eight objects, and now you're trying to find one object that is common between the card in the middle and your own card. And if you have found one, you just put the card in your card in the middle. Your friend is doing the same thing, so your friend also has a card and trying to find a uh, or to spot, this is where the name comes from, to spot the object that is uh, common between the card in the middle and his own card, and also tries to put his card into the middle. So there, therefore, the it's really about uh, being quick, and um, the game finishes, I think, if one of the, the players has put all of uh, his or her cards into the middle. It's, it's quite fun. But now the big question is, how is this game produced? Because what the game designers made sure is that any pair of two cards, so no matter, all, all out of all these 55 car cards, any pair of two cards has exactly one object in common. And this the is intersecting that, lines. Exactly. And this <laughs> is, uh, you, you spotted it uh, very quickly, uh, the, the relation. This is exactly where projective geometry comes in. So this is what you solve, with, uh, for example, with projective geometry. So just uh, so that everyone is on the same page. The items, the objects of the cards, these are the points. And the cards, as you said correctly, these are the lines. So this means that two lines, if I have two lines, for example, so two cards, they intersect in exactly one point. So this means they have exactly uh, one uh, one object uh, in, in common. Uh, it's a quite beautiful application, I think. There's also, it was a bit funny when uh, Nikolai and I um, um, discussed this and then we, of course, also tried to, uh, to reproduce this. We were a bit puzzled because whenever we did this, we thought that there, there should be 57 cards in this game and not 55. 
and we thought maybe we did a mistake and tried again and we said okay it, it should be as far as we understand it should be 57 cards and we were wondering why are there only 55 cards um, and then fortunately in the internet uh, we found that there was another person who had the same question and he actually found out so this is a bit of a basic reason because the uh, the producer of the game just wanted to make sure if you distribute the cards uh, between two or three people, then there is one card uh, in uh, left for the middle. So, uh, <laughs> now what's, what's happening is uh, that in all these factories, uh, they always throw away two of the cards. Uh, but let's hope that they never produce them, of course. So. But it is indeed the projective geometry that is, uh, that is underlying this. And in, in the book, what we are doing is we are creating a... Um, we thought about a game that is based on the same principle um, so that you can also play collectively by a group, but it's really uh, solved also by projective geometry. Okay, the last game in your book is called The Earth Game. Could you describe it for the listeners? <laughs> yes. So this game, uh, this is a little bit different than the others. Um, and um, so maybe I'll come back to that later. So what is the, what is the game about? So you have two players and uh, they're playing against each other this time. And um, in front of each player, there's an inflatable globe. Uh, so think about just the, the Earth, uh, but made uh, from plastic with a lot of air in it. Now, the two players are asked to place the globe just arbitrarily um, in an arbitrary rotation in front of them. And as soon as, as both of them have done this, um, the players are asked to find a spot such as a city on that globe that has the same position on both globes. So I, I should probably explain what I mean by this. So what, is, what does it mean to have the same position? So imagine that uh, there are two tiny people, uh, so one, of each, uh, one on each globe, that is pointing a laser pointer towards the sky, so perpendicular to the surface. Then we are saying that these, uh, this spot is, has the same position on both globes if these... Uh, these lane laser beams are parallel to each other. So we are back in Euclidean geometry. So to give you, give you an example, so if both players decide to put the south pole on the ground, then this means that the north, north pole in both of these globes is pointing exactly upwards. So this would be one of such uh, spots. Um, but in general, of course, it doesn't have to be a pole. It could be an island or a spot in the ocean. And in general, it doesn't have to be the point that uh, points upwards. And now the game is just to say, well, whoever of these two players finds such a spot first and uh, or alternatively cor correctly announces that there is no such point, uh, will win the game. Uh, do they ever announce that there is no such point? <laughs> yes, very clever, very clever question again, Jim. You spotted it again. Um, indeed, uh, so you're right. There's always such a point. So such a point always exists. This is sort of part of this um, uh, game. And the question is, of course, how can you prove this? And again, as before, um, this is done by, uh, I think, in a, in a nice way, by translating the problem into mathematics. So what is the mathematics that comes into play here? Uh, this is really about uh, three-dimensional uh, rotations. Uh, why? Because you can see the, the globe of the second player as a rotation of the globe of the first player. So we are trying then to understand the properties. Uh, there are many nice properties of these rotations. And then we are looking for a point that is sort of invariant under the rotation. 
And just briefly, so the, the existence of such a point, um, this translates to a so-called eigenvalue problem, um, proving this and explaining the details here is a bit hard without uh, oh, yeah. <laughs> data, but we try to explain uh, everything in the book, of course. Yep. There's, there's maybe, if I can add, there's one intuition that maybe helps sure. uh, the, the, the listeners. So there's, it's actually an, a very old problem, so correct me if I'm wrong, but I think it was solved by Leonard uh, Euler. And this is, a, this is a statement as follows. So no matter how you rotate a globe, so you can do whatever you like, um, you have a starting position and now you rotate it, then this rotation can always be described by a single basic rotation around a single axis of rotation. This sounds a bit surprising, uh, but this is really the case. So no matter what you do, uh, this is always equivalent to just rotating around a single axis of rotation. And then if you know this, of course, this tells us something something about the existence of these uh, points because we can just take the intersection of the axis of rotation with the Earth. So maybe this helps, but it's a bit mind-boggling uh, without uh, pen and paper, <laughs> I think. <laughs> Jonas, it's been a lot of fun talking to you. And what I always ask at the end of an interview is there a, how can listeners get in touch with you? Maybe the easiest way is to just send an email. So if you... Uh, search for um, either my name or for Nikolai Meinshausen's uh, name, then you will find our websites and uh, also uh, email addresses. And we, of course, more than happy to receive uh, any comment or, or question about the book. I we are also the... currently working. Go ahead. We are also working on a on a website uh, currently. This is called the Ravenshead dot online. Uh, but it's under construction, and um, we plan to put some code there so that some of the games can also also uh, being played uh, at home. Yeah, that's a good through. point. Rather than looking, you know, Jonas Peters is an easier name than your co-authors, but the <laughs> Raven's Hat is all you have to do is Google a Raven's Hat and you'll find Jonas and you can send him an email. Jonas, thank you very much and I wish you the best of success with your book. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, it was a pleasure. Th many thanks for the excellent questions. This uh, was a very nice conversation. I enjoyed it. For me too. Take care, Jonas. <laughs>